On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is God's word. All right, you may be seated. If you've got kids, you can uh, let them hang out back in the back rooms. We've got one through the back door over there for two years old and under. And then right by the entry door to the right, uh, we've got another room over there that is for uh, three years old and older. Um, Of course, we're doing a whole, uh, a whole year where we're examining discipleship. Uh, we are going to take a few breaks. One of those breaks is coming up. Uh, we're going to kind of divert from this a little bit around Easter. Then we'll do a little more discipleship. Then we'll uh, spend a summer in the Psalms. And then we're going to take uh, a little bit back to normal discipleship. We'll do a little bit of political discipleship, which I'm still, still wrapping my mind around. I think it's going to be good. And then, uh, and then we'll end um, on, on more discipleship. So we're looking at discipleship for a, from a bunch of different angles throughout the year. I think it should be good. And uh, yeah, this evening, we're going to get from, from this text that Vi read to us, we're going we're gonna to look at the idea of qualifications. So there are a lot of things you could look at in this text. I want to be clear that this is not going to be the most thorough explanation of Acts, you know, 4, 5 to 22 ever. Uh, but we're going to look at this one idea uh, from it, this idea of qualifications. So let's pray together, and we'll enter in. Father, I am grateful that, that you have qualified me to speak, that you've qualified us to uh, even call ourselves a church. 
um, that in some of us, you are opening our eyes to what you could uh, do for us, what you could do in our lives, and thank you that you do that work. Um, I know I'm painfully aware that if I were uh, just going on my own uh, qualifications, whether inward or outward, that I would be very, very uh, unqualified. And so I'm thankful for what you've done, for your mercy, for your grace, most of all. And I pray that you would take us and the little that we bring and you would multiply it and that you would use it and that you would build your kingdom through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's the question. Are you qualified to disciple? Are you equipped enough? And what does the Bible say that you need? And and this scripture begs the question, and this is the scripture I actually changed it this week as I was thinking about it, because this is the scripture that I used to use uh, to prove I didn't need to go to seminary. Um, So I used to point to this, and I used to say, look, you know, you've got Peter and John were unskilled and ordinary men, so why should I have to go take out a loan and uh, go get a degree to teach the Bible? You know, what's up with that? Can't They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Can't the Holy Spirit you know, work in me, even though I don't have these qualifications. So this was, my, this was my verse, and I'm now going to somewhat agree and somewhat disagree with my former self uh, to all of you. And so that's, that's why I picked it. I do find it interesting here. I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but, you know, some of you don't really know uh, where, you know, Nick and I are coming from. But the truth is here that our pastors and elders, it's almost like this. It's almost like God came into Mission Church, and he went, who who?" didn't really go to much college. And he drew this, them out and made them the elders of the church here. Um, Andrew breaks the mold. But, um, but that's like, that's sort, of the, that's sort of how it feels sometimes. Like we, we've kind of laughed about it, that in a way, like we, the leaders here, in a way have come to you as underqualified in some sense. But, and this happens here with physical fitness, I think Nick and I joke about this, is like for a while we had, I mean, we still have a lot of runners, you know, and, and if I were you and I were like really into distance running, I would go, I want a church where that's like the thing, where the pastor understands me. Well, I don't. I don't understand. Um, I have no desire to run at all. Like basketball gets me running for other reasons. I want to get the ball in the hoop. If it weren't for that, I would not run anywhere, Right. And, but you runners still like it here, and that's great. And Nick also, you never see Nick and I running. Have you ever noticed that? Have you, have you ever seen us run anywhere? No, we don't, but runners still like us. And it, it feels the same way with like these qualifications. Like we're, we're coming to you and it's like, man, how do we have, how do the law students come here? What, can we talk about that later? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know. And people who are working on their PhDs and things happen here, like I said one time that the sun was a ball of fire, right? And then Garrett had to take me aside <laughs> after the service, and he gave me a little talk, you know, on the sun. And he was like, Andy, here's the thing. It's not a ball of fire. I'm sorry. And I felt really smart. But, it, but somehow it works. It, somehow it works. And, and I think, and I'm going to use Nick as an example because he's not me and he's not even here, which is great. So, but... But Nick, our our other pastor, I mean, I don't, and I don't think I've heard from any of you that any of us doubt his commitment to the gospel or to the Holy Spirit. I mean, I doubt his ability to be a perfect man, but I don't, 
I don't doubt his commitment. I've known him for years, and many of you have known him more than me, and I see him making decisions where he lays down his life, you know, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of other people. Recently, this struck me because, and some of you don't know this, but, you know, next weekend, Nick is going to take an ordination exam. And if you know Nick, and if you knew anything about this process, you would know this is death to him. This is dying to himself. This is not fun. This is like reading books that seem really like they aren't going to be practical in any way. And this is going to be like getting up in front. You know, Nick's nervous about talking up in front of people. He's going to get put in front of people who are going to ask him questions. He's dying inside. But to watch him go, you know what? I think this is good. And I think this is going to be good for our church. So I'm going to do this thing I don't want to do. Like to me, that, that's huge. That's what I don't see very often. That's the kind of person I want to follow after is somebody who makes hard decisions to love people that, it can, that you know, require him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Look, um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this. I, I think people like me, if you told me that God's call for me was to go overseas and be a missionary, that sounds awesome. I'm super up for that. I love to travel. I have my qualms with America. I can, I can admit it. I do. And so when I leave, I'm always like, oh, these people get it, even though if I really lived there, you know, I'd know their issues. You know the thing I didn't want to do ever? I think I've shared this. I didn't want to pastor a church. I really didn't want to do it. Like, this has been a process for me. I think like Nick going into ordination, for me, this scared me more. Like, absolutely scared me more. And it just felt like like painful to me. Like, this was a thing to do this was not the big exciting thing. And when I reflect on, on why some people have gathered here and how Nick and I somehow got a, a church full of educated people, I wonder if it's something about, you know, when you, when you go out and you get credentials, you can see that the people teaching you who you get your academic credentials from, they may or may not really live by what they teach, right? Some do, but some don't. It's not, that's not the litmus test. You see that. And so I think when you've been in those circles, when you've seen those things, the question is, who really wants to do this? I want to follow somebody who's really doing this. They could have credentials or not. But I want to follow after people who are really doing this. But today, that's just our church. That's something I find really interesting. We have kind of unskilled, ordinary leaders around here in many respects. But today we're not talking about pastoring. We're talking about being called to disciple. I'm talking about us all, all of us. Because the Great Commission is all-inclusive. It's to Christians. All Christians were called to go and to make disciples and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what do we go with? What tools do we go with? Uh, What are we going to say? How do we prepare for this? What should we do exactly? What methodology do we follow? And, And I think when I really read back over this, that we can learn from Peter and John and what they faced as they got in this discussion with religious leaders at the temple, 
I think there are some things we can learn. And I, I really came up with seven qualifications out of here. And so I'm just going to give them to you. And the first three have to do with practices. I see in here humility, regularity, and readiness. So humility. Peter and John, and I often, because this is in the book of Acts, now I, I often get the timeline a little mixed up. But if you think about it, this wasn't very long um, after Jesus had been crucified. This is pretty short, shortly thereafter. This is when the Jewish leaders are still in an uproar. People are still trying to figure out what happened. The Christian message is very new. And so if it's not long after the crucifixion, it means it's not long after the Last Supper, possibly just a couple months. And the Last Supper was where Peter was so sure he was never going to deny Jesus, right? Where he was like, I would never deny, I would die for you, Jesus. I would do anything, I would die for you. you like, I am committed to you. You are my teacher, we are close. I am by your side, no matter what. That was Peter. And John, you know, not too long before that, as Mark 10 teaches us, had come up to Jesus and was thinking, this Jesus guy is doing very well. And he, I think he's going to make it. I think he's going to be a leader. And my brother John and I are thinking we could really be his top guys. And John had come to him and said, hey, um, you know, and they kind of talked to their mom and they got the message in, you know, hey, uh, when you're crowned king or whatever you're going to be, we were thinking, you know, you could seat us at your right and your left, you know, you know and that would really be good on a resume. And they had kind of like come in and they'd gone, so could we, have, could we have some authority with you, right? And Jesus had knocked him down a notch, didn't he? He said, look, if you want to, he, he was like, first of all, I can't even, I can't give out positions. And then he said, and then if you want to be great, here's what you do. You got to serve other people. And then at that last supper, when, when Peter's like, I, I, will, I will fight for you. I'll never deny you. He said, ah, you're going to. And the thing about this is in front of all the disciples, he goes, you know, before the rooster crows three times, you know, you'll, you'll deny me. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And like, and that's pretty rough. Peter's just made, I mean, that's like if one of you, it's not even that. It's, it's terrible. It's in front of all of his friends. He, he goes, I will die for you. And Jesus goes, you're going to deny me three times before the next time you hear a rooster. Wow. Ouch. That hurt. And it happened right? It happened. So at this point where, where Peter and John are in this temple and having this altercation with the religious leaders, here are two things they can never do. Peter can no longer say, I would never deny Christ. That ship has sailed. People know it. He knows it. All the other disciples know it. John could no longer flippantly say, I would stand at, love to stand at your right hand and your left hand, because Jesus had said to him, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And that little, that little phrase that he said to, to John and his brother James could mean a couple things. I think John probably thought it meant, like, can you handle the responsibility? And he's like, yes, I can, and I will. And Jesus, you know, effectively was like, okay, we'll see. And, he, and, he, and he's crucified. He bears a cup of wrath and death. And now John has to look back at what Jesus went through and go, can I bear that cup? 
I don't think he can say so flippantly, yes, sure, no problem. I think now he's going, that's, that's tough. They've been humbled. And so I would say, when you know you're not qualified, when you're able to admit it, as Peter and John were in this situation, you might be becoming qualified. Say it positively. You might be qualified when you can see you aren't qualified and admit that that's true, but still move forward based on the qualifications that Jesus has given to you. So humility, huge deal. I think Peter and John here are moving forward in strength because they had been humbled. The second, regularity. This harkens back to a couple weeks ago and the idea of going to church. Peter and John are doing alarmingly normal stuff on this day that where we read about them in Acts 4. It was the, it was the hour for prayer. Uh, they were going to the temple where it was time for prayer. That was their plan for the day. Okay, so let's just simple application for this. If you want a disciple, probably just commit yourself to the practices of the faith. Like they had a pretty big day. It got logged in the book of Acts. A man was healed. They gave an incredible speech, but their plan for the day now was just to go pray with everybody else. That was it. If you want a disciple, commit yourself to the regular practices of the faith because typically God's going to work through people who are following him. Typically. God can work despite of you even though you're not following him. That's true, but that's never our plan. I think our plan needs to be to walk with Jesus, do the regular, like pray, read the scriptures, gather together, and then see what God will do for you. Um, here would be a little, a little maxim I might suggest. We shouldn't be giving an answer we've been trained to give. We should be giving an answer we've trained ourselves to believe. And that's what happens when you read the scriptures, when you pray, when you go and fellowship with the saint. You're training yourself to believe the message. And then the answer will come out of what you've trained yourself to believe. Okay, so humility, regularity, readiness. It's a little bit similar. Christians usually, I think, are not called to go out and change the world. I don't think that's a biblical goal, standing by itself especially. We change the world if and when we've been changed by being reconciled to God. And it happens when we just go out and do what we're called to do, normal stuff. Um. Peter and John, you know, they're, they're walking into the temple because it's time for prayer, and this, man, and this man's asking for money. And they offer him healing in Jesus' name, which is pretty incredible. But notice, they were not on a culture-reversing mission. They saw a man who was in need of money, and now they didn't give him any money. You'll notice. Um, he needed deeper healing than the money. He, he needed something that would, you know, allow him to go and, and produce and, and, you know, live and work in his world. But then again, Jesus's miracles never, I would say, they never stayed at the surface level. They were always getting at a deeper spiritual need. 
And so there's a little detail in, in Acts 4, which is that when this man goes away, he's praising God. And I don't know all the layers of his story and why this moved him to praise God, but I know that this miracle, this outward miracle did something inwardly with him and his relationship to God. It it made an impact. And it seems like Jesus's healings were always pointing to deeper spiritual realities. And look, I mean, I'm going to take a little aside here on on the healing question. Number one, you can't plan to bring any kind of healing, and Peter and John didn't plan for this, right? They didn't, like, read a book on it. They didn't have a prayer memorized. They didn't do, they were just going to the church to pray. I'm also not convinced that we should expect to see the healings the apostles saw as often. I, there's different views here. We, I could talk about that. I'd love to discuss that. But there's, an, there's a special amount of supernatural activity that happens about three times in redemptive history that I can see. One is creation. One is the deliverance from Egypt when the law of God is delivered. Like This is incredible in the history of the Bible. And then around the time of Jesus and the apostles. There's, there's something really incredible that happens around that time. So I don't know that we should expect it to look the same today. And it doesn't. And so we shouldn't all be like, oh no, the church stinks. That's not necessarily the case. But I still think that the Christian's ministry brings a healing element. But I think what we're going to see the most is the under-the-surface healing that the miracles pointed to. This guy, he gets healed in an exterior way, but his, the result is he's praising God. Elsewhere, you know, a man is healed, but it's evidence that his sins were forgiven. I mean, these are the kind of things, like we're still seeing the behind the healing healing today. We can still see people come to praise a God they did not know or, or a God that they were alienated from. And we can still see people getting reconciled to a God they were alienated from. And so if the, if the miracles of the Bible were getting at those issues, we're still seeing the issues behind the issues getting healed today. And so I think when we offer a healing ministry, we should be thinking in terms of, of what, of this readiness that the apostles had. They were, they were ready to offer more when they were just going to church. Are we ready to offer a healing ministry? Our, our deacons, for example, are coming along and, and supporting vulnerable people. I mean, these are people that we know and we bump into on a regular basis. Many of us are offering deep spiritual care to people who are our friends who are coming to us. Are we ready for that? Some of us are providing practical care for one another and our neighbors. We're giving time, friendship. We're giving the gospel in time of need. And these are healing ministries. We have to be ready to provide these things. And often they come in our everyday lives when we don't expect them, when we don't see them coming. I had a a moment... uh, Recently, I went up to Phoenix, had a little weekend away, and I went to a baseball game. And because I went to a baseball game all by myself and it was opening day for the Cubs, I was going to be sitting next to somebody. That's just how it goes. When you go see the Cubs, you're, gonna get, you're not going to have room. And so I was, uh, I was sandwiched right between two people, and they were both from out of town. And uh, I was in the Cubs section wearing an Oakland A's hat, which wasn't a great plan. And so I got a lot of conversation. That's what happens. 
And I'm talking to the guy next to me, and he's from out of town, and his daughter's looking at going to the UVA, and so immediately, like, we kind of had some, some stuff to discuss, and he just visited Tucson, and we were chatting, and, and he kept kind of coming back to me and asking me things. So it was, okay, great, we're, we have a comfort level, this is good. And then he asked the inevitable question that I get, which is like, so what do you do for work? And I have a great opportunity in front of me because I can totally skip church because I do other things, right? Um, so I can go furniture manufacturing. Oh, that's very interesting. Tell me more. Wow, furniture. Man- oh, you know. But, but I didn't, right? I, did, I, did the, I said I do two things. I do furniture manufacturing and, I've, and I'm a pastor. And I kid you not, he went, oh, and turned back to the game. So it got a little bit awkward. And then, uh, and then I was like, well, where do we go from here? We've got another seven innings together, you know? And so I just went, you know, I kind of waited like probably about three batters. And then I was like, I'm going back in with this guy. So I said, hey, uh, you know, what do you do? I didn't catch what you did, you know? And and we kind of re-entered, and I, I kid you not, it was kind of like we were lo- doing a little bit of this, you know, a little, okay. And then we kind of moved into some funny stuff, and we were laughing, and the daughter got, and we got, we got back on track, okay? And I think he, somewhere in there, he was like, okay, I still like talking to this guy, you know? And he asked me something, and I was able to say, well, you know, that's kind of where my, my faith comes in, because I view it this way. And that went well. And then he, he offered me a beer. And I was like, we're back on track. We're on, <laughs> we're going. We're like, we're back on, you know? Like he's, if he's down to spend $10, because that's how much one is at a Cubs game, he must not hate me anymore. So, you know, I don't know how prepared I, but that's the thing, like you never know. You never know where, when you could go there. I mean, I'm just going to a game. I'm trying to get away from being a pastor for two days. And guess what? You know, God's like, I He's like, I'm going to sit you next to this guy. You're going to have a meaningful conversation. So we need to be, have lives that are centered on Jesus, doing our regular, our regular things, you know, because we, we never know when we're going to need to be ready. I, I recently called on my friend Rod for this uh, sort of thing. And, you know, I'd, I'd shared in here that I've, I've had to go and do some stuff in the court, and this is stuff that really is like anxiety driving for me. And the day before I went down to a a mediation session, I called Rod, and it was like the day before I finally got up the courage to say, I need somebody to go with me, because I I really didn't want to have to do that. And so Rod, like, he rearranged his schedule, and he came with me, and I'll tell you what, like, Rod isn't trained, and he told me he'd never done anything like this before. He wasn't trained to go into the court system with somebody. He wasn't trained to help somebody, like, walk through this particular version of anxiety. But I'll tell you what, I've done that alone before. And then doing it with Rod felt like there was healing happening. And I'll tell you what, like I felt a physical difference. Having one of God's people, a person sitting with me, ministering to me, asking me how I was doing, that was powerful work. And he didn't have time to get ready because I just called him the night before. And I think that's the kind of stuff that we're called to do. And sometimes we don't see it as profound as it is. I think sometimes we look back at the Bible and we go, we're just not doing any of that. You are. Every time somebody calls you and they're in distress, every time you have an opportunity to just 
sit next to somebody at a, at a sports game. I mean, who knows? I want us to be ready. I think that's what this scripture is getting at. Like, be, be ready, because you might just be going to church and show up, and, and there's something way bigger going on, and you had no idea, okay? So those are my first three. Those are kind of the, yeah, maybe the practices, like the readiness and, and the humility and just the rhythms, going to church, stuff like that. Like, those are key things. They can seem like nothing, but they're huge. They set the table for this. The, the last four, the second four, have to do with knowledge. Knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of the culture, knowledge that comes through God's Spirit, and an intimate knowledge of Jesus. I want to encourage you, and I hope you see this. I'm not bagging on school. I, I went back to school. I did it, actually. I, I've, I'm still working on it. Um, that's, I'm, someday I'll have a master's. I promise. It's, it's going to happen. Um, but um, I'm not bagging on school. I'm not bagging on books. I'm not bagging on classes or tools. But I think those aren't our biggest qualifications. I think those are tools that can, our qualifications can use but I think we need to lean on our qualifications. And a lot of times when we start talking about discipleship or, or evangelism or something, we pull out a tool and we forget the qualifications and we neglect the qualifications. Um, my mom referred a guy to this church and he called me and he asked me what seminary I went to and I told him I wasn't done. You know, and I said, I, I'm, I'm probably about, I got about five more classes. And he goes, oh, right. And uh, he said, well, um, you know, I, I really want to go to a church that has, you know, great preaching. And he named off some pastors. And he goes, do you think that you could, you know, stand on those kind of grounds? And I, and I had this sense in me that, like, I know where this conversation needs to go. And I told him, I said, hey, um, I'm going to tell you right now that if you come to our church, if you're not disappointed in my speaking, you'll be disappointed with something. But we will, we will claim and proclaim Jesus Christ crucified. And if that's what you're interested in, we'd love to have you. And if not, you know, you can really go find a speech anywhere. They're, they're really easy to find. You can Google them. And he didn't come. Um, but that's the thing. We don't want to prioritize a tool. I mean, a great speech, that's, that's great. But the qualifications we're looking for, knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of the culture, God's spirit, familiarity with Jesus, I will stand on those. I want to read Acts 4, 5 to 12 one more time. Look, see if you can see these qualifications in this text. On the next day, the rulers, rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or, what by, or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done by a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, 
which has become the cornerstone. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let me work out these qualifications. Peter knew Psalm 118. This is a key. Again, he didn't show up ready for this situation. He didn't prepare a talk like I did tonight. He didn't. He just was going to pray. They offer healing to a man. It happens, and now they're getting questioned. And he is quoting Psalm 118 unrehearsed. And he's not citing it. He doesn't say, oh, from Psalm 118, chapter 5. He doesn't. He just knows part of it, and he applies it very directly to them. In Psalm 118, 19 and 24, says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. And of course, Jesus had said things like, I am the gate for the sheep and made reference to this himself. And then it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And of course, a cornerstone in a building is the foundational starting point upon which everything else is built. So it would be the first stone you'd lay down. It would be a choice stone. It's the reference point from which you continue the whole uh, foundation. And so the builder would pick the best stone and position it. And this psalm is alluding to the fact that the builders of something had rejected the best stone, had built their foundation on something else, and that God was now replacing what they were building on with his chosen stone, right? So the psalm hundreds of years before was saying God was going to do something like that. And it said in the psalm again, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And Peter knew Psalm 118 and that it pointed to Israel's hope and that it was confirming who Jesus was and he was applying it very directly because he even said that the stone that you builders rejected, you the builders, he's like, you are the ones the psalm was talking about. And he's rooting the concept of Jesus into the Old Testament narrative that there was going to be a coming savior of the Israeli tribe that was then going to bless all the nations. And I want to encourage you, just a quick thing on knowing the Bible, like, there is no Jesus without the Old Testament. There, it, Jesus is absolutely irrelevant without the Old Testament. So if you want to just like base your, your life on the words of Jesus, he relied on the Old Testament so much, you might as well just go ahead and get familiar. It's the only way. It's the only, Jesus' life is only meaningful if you know the Old Testament. And so to understand that the depths of what Jesus do, did, does and did you have to grow in your knowledge of the Bible and be able to represent him you know, accurately in what he was doing in the whole biblical narrative. And Peter did that because he was ready. It just came out. He knew his Old Testament. He knew his Bible. But he also had knowledge of his culture. And there's a reason that Peter's sermon here, for example, is different than Paul when he goes to the Areopagus or Mars Hill. Paul there is talking very, and if you're not familiar, I'll try to sum it up. He's, he's talking very like broad strokes about th that they had in their culture an unknown God, and he was aware of that, and he'd seen that. And he said, I want to talk to you about your unknown God. And he starts describing a God behind all the other gods 
and, and it's intriguing, and, and people were kind of, they wanted to hear more. And then they, most of them didn't accept it, but they wanted to hear more. And Paul knew that's where these people are at. Peter here is talking to religious leaders who know their Old Testament. And so he's anchoring his argument in a very specific section of the Old Testament. He knew his audience. And we must know the culture that we're speaking to. And as in an ancient city like Jerusalem or Ephesus, today is the same. There are a multiplicity of cultures within a culture. There's kind of groups of culture within a culture. There's probably a culture at your work. There's probably a culture on your street. We have a culture in this church, you know, in, in your neighborhood. There, there's innumerable, your family, like you, you kind of need to know what's, what's the culture? What's the, the going way of thinking? And some questions you could ask would be like, what's authoritative to this group? What do they submit to? And everybody has something. Everybody has something. What is it? That's a good question to ask. What is most valuable to this group and why is it so valuable? That's a good thing to know. How do they define really key things like love and justice and truth and meaning? How do they define those things? What do they wish the world was like? What would be their ideal their eschatological hope, we might say. When it all ends, where's it going? What, what, are, what are they hoping in? Where do they think it ends? And what are they hoping in? And I would say look for longings. Longings for truth, unity, justice, peace, meaning, belonging, forgiveness, safety. Look for those things. What are the longings? And learn the ways in which Christianity can address them. And you're going to have to know those before you go in. You think about that. Like, if you want to be a discipler, think about such things. On behalf of other people, marinate on such things because it will come up and you will have opportunities to build intrigue and then to be able to share and say, you know, like, I mean, one thing I say, it's just a simple thing. I'd say, you know, as a, as a Christian, that's built in in this belief we have. And then kind of saying, in your system, where's that built in? Is something built in for you that answers that question? And people usually aren't bothered by that line of thought. Now, I had an, I had an example of something like this happen to me. I was at a Sunshine Mile event. Um, it was like an ode to mid-century modernism. And so I didn't see it coming, right? I, just was, I was there watching the door. And, uh, and I'm sitting next to this other volunteer and uh, the guy, he's a radio DJ, and he asked me what I did, and same conversation, right? And he's like, oh, that's, that's awesome. I do a radio show. I should have you on there because I'm Jewish. And I had, a, I had a question pop into my head, and, my, and I asked it. And I said, would you want to promote Christianity as a Jewish person? And he said, sure, we're saying the same thing. And I said, no, we're not. And he was like, Yes, I think we are. I said, okay, tell me how. And he talked about some of the morality stuff. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, a lot of people, like most of us are, are on that boat, right? And I said, but I'm, I would say, if you really pressed me, what people need the most, I would say that people need to be reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you be comfortable with me saying that on your show? And he was like, oh. And he's like, well, I believe in atonement too. And I said, okay. I said, how's that happen for you? 
And he said, well, you know, in the feasts and Yom Kippur and so on. And I said, you know, in your Old Testament, it demands a lot more than that. And he said, yeah, but, you know, we don't have a temple anymore. And I said, so you think the feast is sufficient to cover over your sin? And he was kind of like, I don't know. And I said, well, you should probably think about that. And we, and we just kind of went on with our day. Like, I thought looking back on that, I thought, man, like, I didn't know that much about modern Judaism. Frankly, I really didn't, and I still could, could use some work. But I thought, I am so glad that there was enough there. It wasn't a bad conversation. It wasn't, I think it was good. But, like, it really helps to know where people are coming from to be able to have those kind of, because they come up. I was just volunteering at a public event. Okay, so know your audience. Um, Next, in Acts 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus and the apostles taught that Jesus would be here for a short period of time, and then he was going to leave, and he said when he left, he was going to leave his spirit, his comforter with us, who would guide us into all truth. And there's this this guidance, this presence of God's spirit, and it's a very mysterious thing. And sometimes the, the Bible seems to allude to the fact that God's spirit fills someone or takes over to this mysterious degree in which we, we don't know what to say, we wouldn't know what to do, but the spirit guides us. And I know that can sound a little wild, but I can attest to times in which I've sensed a clear leading to address something very specific or times where I've said or done something that someone's come back and reported to me was extremely meaningful, and to me, it was nothing. I didn't realize I was saying anything of any impact. I didn't even know what I was talking about. I don't know if you've had some of those kind of experiences. Even, and this is more rare for me, but there was a, not too long ago, speaking of dreams, as I shared earlier, one time I, I woke up in the middle of the night, and this isn't like a normal experience for me, but I had a dream about a student I used to work with and it was really specific, like really, really specific. And I just began to pray for that student in the middle of the night and I got a call from him about a month later that he was in trouble around the time of the dream. Now I, look, like you gotta, you know, that's kind of hard to explain stuff outside of God and a Holy Spirit. And I'm not alone. I was listening to a, a Jordan Peterson talk today Guys like him who aren't even Christians say, look, I've had experiences like that, and we have to grapple with that. Like, it, it's a thing. And this idea that someone could be filled with the Holy Spirit and led to do, some, to do something or to pray or to say something is important. And I think as Christians, we should expect that. And I don't mean for that to be a crutch for us, meaning that we don't, like, prepare or we don't go through normal, like, decision-making and learning processes because we just kind of go out into the world willy-nilly and go, hey, I'm sure the Holy Spirit will fill me and tell me what to say. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that we can move forward in confidence when we do as much as we can because we only have so much bandwidth that we can move forward in confidence knowing the Spirit of God ultimately is guiding this thing and wants to disciple through us and we can move forward without having all everything figured out. Peter here, I have no doubt, actually memorized the Bible, actually knew his culture, but actually was carried and guided and directed by the Holy Spirit. 
finally, and this is where we end, if it weren't already historically obvious, it became very clear in Jesus' response, or in Peter's response, sorry, that Peter and John had been with Jesus. These people, the, the priests and the elders saw it. They said it was evident to them that they'd been with Jesus. And here's what it is. I, I don't think they just were like, that was just a Jesus-like thing to say. I don't think it was that. I think it was that Jesus actually said almost the same thing one time to a similar group of people. And we read it in Matthew 21. Jesus in Matthew 21 is being criticized, and they're asking him, where do you get your authority? It's a very similar question to what they're asking Peter and John here. And Jesus had just given a couple of parables that were very biting, um, kind of as, you know, Peter had just done to these people. He'd said, you were the ones that rejected the cornerstone, and Jesus had just given parables that called them like a, a wicked son and a wicked tenant who had, been, who had turned on their master, and he'd said those kind of things. And these leaders had said, by what authority do you say these things? And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who produce its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, I will crush them. And said, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard these parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And though they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the crowds held him to be a prophet. You know why they knew that Peter and John had been with Jesus? Because Jesus said this. He basically said the same thing. And Peter and John, they had their Bible memorized, but they also were speaking the flavor of what Jesus would speak. They were shaped by actually being with Jesus, right? And it's a little more complicated because I, I think I kind of mentioned before, I used to assume that this text, you know, they perceived that they'd been with Jesus probably meant something like they could just tell they were just super nice, you know? And I hear that kind of stuff. People go, I met this really nice person. I, maybe they're a Christian. They're super nice. And unfortunately, you can be nice and not be a Christian. That's, you know, get out there. You'll, you'll meet really nice people. Jesus wasn't just super nice. Jesus was this unique combination of things. He had an authority that people got the sense was not just normal authority. It seemed like he was speaking from God. Sometimes he would very directly oppose someone based on that authority. He could be very kind and very gracious, often to surprising people and to people who you'd normally suck up to to get political power, he wouldn't really give them the time of day. And he would tell them that they were hypocrites. And it was kind of a complicated mix. And it was unique to Jesus. And it felt very unique to the prophets and very unique to the God of Moses and Abraham. It, it all kind of felt like the same God. And I think what they experienced in Peter and John where they were like, this is one of those baffling things where the crowds love it because it is so authoritative and true and it's not just trying to get power and it's offering mercy, but it's not just letting people slip and slide. And they thought this is that unique Jesus-like stuff. And in fact, they're saying about the same thing. And they perceived this was going to be way more complicated to deal with because this was Jesus-shaped 
stuff. So what really set Peter and John apart as unskilled, ordinary men was not their lack of skill. It was that they'd been with Jesus. They were uncategorizable except for under the heading of having been with Jesus. And I think the same is true today. I think as they recalled the Old Testament and, and, uh, and they spoke with an, a unique authority and they weren't bound to just trying to fit into human systems and they knew their Bible, I think the same will be true of us. If we know our scriptures and we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we exhibit that we know what Jesus would say in a situation like this, I think people will, will notice that. As they grew you know, whether they were being humbled or taught or shaped, we can grow in those same ways. We can get tools, we can use books, but at the end of the day, we should be shaped by Jesus. And so that's why we, we end on something like the table. And t- today I want us to infuse the table with this extra layer of meaning. Number one, remember, this is the table where Peter was humbled. The table isn't just, it's, it's an affirmation of God's love for us, but it's also the table where Jesus was humbled or where Peter was humbled by Jesus. I mean, think about it. You know, Peter hears the words, you're going to betray me three times. And then Jesus, a little bit later, you know, he takes the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. And think about Peter later when he denies Jesus, when he falls into exactly what Jesus said he would do and he was humbled, but he also remembered The one who disciplined me, the one who humbled me, is the one who died for me. And that's a unique message. And that's that's what we're gathering around this evening. This is the table where Jesus taught them to serve one another, right? I mean, he's the one handing out the bread. He's the one handing out the wine. He's the one saying, my body is broken. This is my body spilt out for you. Just as around a similar table, he'd washed their feet. This is the table we're taught to return to over and over again. This is the table that illustrates the message we should always be ready to share, that should be ingrained in us, absolutely stuck in our heads. This is the table where Jesus promised his mysterious presence with us. Where he said, Every time you eat this bread, every time you drink this cup, declare to one another that I'm returning. I am with you in spirit and I'm returning. And we will be victorious. So as you come to this table, infuse it with that meaning. And I would encourage you, deeply encourage you to invest in the real qualifications. Be with Jesus. Know how he would say things. Know how he would do things. Know his word. Know the Old Testament that speaks of him and the New Testament that tells his story. And be ready. And then you will be making disciples. Let's sing together. Let's receive him by faith. We have giving in the back. My encouragement to you all is is that you would give out of a generous and gracious heart. Don't feel like you have to do it to check a box. Do it because you want to. Let's take the Lord's Supper by faith, sing with all of our hearts, and prepare to eat a meal together and prepare to show the love of Christ to one another in very, very, very practical ways.